Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Logicast, the podcast brought to you by Logicata, where we take a deep dive into last week's AWS news. I'm here with my colleague John Goodall. Morning John, how are you doing today? I'm I'm good, I'm well. How are you? That's good. Actually, you sound better than usual when I ask you that question. Um, I'm slightly uh, worse than usual uh, in asking the question myself. I just uh, got back from a two-day stag party over the weekend, so you may notice my voice is a little bit uh, more uh, squeaky than usual, perhaps, in today's podcast. Uh, but uh, we will do our best to uh, entertain and educate the audience, as always. Um, so uh, if you're new to the podcast, um, every week I curate, uh, personally curate a list of AWS news, which we distribute in our weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter, uh, which you can sign up for on our website, logicarta.com slash join. Um, and each week, John and I pick uh, a subset of those articles and we talk about them in greater detail. So the first article we've got this week. Um, is from the AWS Compute blog uh, by a guy called Julian Wood, who's been uh, writing a long time. I remember him from his VMware days, actually. He's very active in the uh, the VMware community, blogging from VMworld and so on and so forth. But he now is doing the same thing for AWS because the world's moved on from VMware, let's face it. So um, <laughs> so uh, this, this particular blog post... Um, is uh, entitled Introducing Payload-Based Message Filtering for Amazon SNS. Uh, SNS, of course, being the simple notification service. So uh, tell me about this new feature, John, and how it's going to make everyone's life easier. Sure. So in the same way that SQS, and I know I'm hopping services here, but in the same way that SQS and SNS work in the same way, they have... Uh, message attributes, which is things about the message, its size, its start date, where it was from, that kind of thing. And it has the message itself, the payload, for lack of a better term, that's what they call it. Yeah. You've pretty much always been able to filter based on the attributes, depending on the service, right? I think last week we spoke about RDS enabling this for the first time. So, But depending on the service, you've pretty much been able to filter on the message attributes so that if it came from a certain location, you could just sort of ignore it and not run and not trigger. Great. What this is doing is this is letting you filter based on the content of the message, which is even better because a lot of the interesting detail from the message is in the message itself. It's not, you know, this has come from Lambda. Okay, great. But what does it say? You know, what, what, what keywords have I put in it? So by virtue of being able to filter based on the keywords in the message, because you have written that message, you can define the filtering rules you can significantly reduce the amount of false starts or, or starts where you've had to kind of drop the execution because it's not hit your criteria to run without having to write the code to do that, which is great because, again, as, as we keep saying, I keep saying, less code is better. Write less code. And this is writing less code. It's brilliant. It's not quite no code, though. <laughs> no, it's not quite no code. It depends on how you view JSON. Is JSON code? It's sort of code. <laughs> Is it not code then? I thought it was code. Uh, d d don't say that to something like a Java developer. <laughs> right, okay. <It's>, uh... <laughs> so I just had to mute for a moment there because I, I think I had a helicopter going overhead. So I don't know whether my mic was sensitive enough to pick up that helicopter. Um, but uh, yeah, while we're off on a tangent, I probably should have mentioned it in my uh, in my opening preamble. But we talked about the croc charms last week, and they finally arrived. So uh, there we go. There's uh, <laughs> one, of, nice. one of my uh, croc charms. I apologise if you're listening to this uh, and not watching it in video format. And there's the other one. Um, so uh, hang on, yeah. let me get mine. Hang on. 
Oh yes, you've got two on each shoe. That's uh, you've outdone me there, John. Uh, but you're not oh, wearing them. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, because I'm inside. I don't wear shoes inside. Well, you're sort of inside the outside outhouse. <laughs> this isn't an outhouse. Good grief. <laughs> anyway, uh, so let, let's move on to the next article, um, which is another um, AWS blog post. Um, and this is back to one of our recurring themes on the blog um, around sustainability, because um, obviously it's uh, a huge uh, theme in the whole IT industry at the moment. So th this one is about how to select a region for your workload based on sustainability goals. Um, so uh, AWS, I forget the number of regions now, but I think it's in fact, 20, 20 odd regions around the world Something um, like that. and, and counting. And uh, yeah, we've got an, an announcement about another one um, later on in, in, in the uh, in the podcast uh, but this one is uh, around how to there might be various different drivers for what region you're going to select um, often the most obvious one is proximity um, to to your customers uh, but uh, sustainability now of course being a pillar in the um, AWS well-architected framework could well be uh, a driver for how you might go about selecting region um, for your for your workloads so tell us more John um, why, why should you consider selecting a region based on sustainability goals first of all i guess um obvious reasons really because one of the interesting things it wasn't really a driver to start with it is now as you say well architecture framework and all that but one of the interesting factors of moving to the cloud is it makes your workloads more sustainable and we've touched on this before because it's things like resource density and, and shared resources and you know you're not having to buy the servers when you only need it for 40 percent of the time and someone else can use them and so on and so on so yeah the obvious reasons for picking based on sustainability are the obvious reasons for picking based on sustainability because we all live on this planet for now at least and we'd like it to continue to be habitable if a little bit damp today um, so that's the obvious. In the less obvious, picking based on sustainability has this nice little dovetail into picking based on cost. Because generally, generally, if it's cheaper to um, procure and run the, the, the electricity, to run the data centers that run the region, it's going to be more sustainable, right? Because coal isn't particularly cheap for power sources. Wind power, much cheaper. Except, of course, if you live in the UK and, and your electricity is based on the nominal price of gas, even if it's come from not gas. But let's let's, let's move on from the macroeconomics for the minute. Um, so, yeah, it's picking based on sustainability for obvious reasons is good. And then on top of that, it can be a little bit cheaper. The article does have some really quite nice maps because they've got some electricity maps based on sort of where the power is coming from and and interesting things like that. So... If you look at um, the bottom of the article, it talks about the electricity map. Stockholm has a lower carbon intensity of electricity consumed than London does. Presumably because out in that sort of Scandi-Wegian, Sweden, Scandinavian, all, all that, they've got lots and lots of hydro and wind and all that sort of thing. And yes, the UK is getting there, but we have quite a bit of gas in our network still. So if you really care about sustainability and you're based in in the uk i mean we're kind of spoiled for choice in northern europe on on regions but stockholm might be a good one to pick stockholm is more expensive than london i think but that's probably rent based rather than power generation based so 
you know, as, as you say, there's there's a number of different factors to consider when picking which region you want to go in. And I personally, and I know a lot of people are, very guilty of just picking either the closest one to you or the closest one to you that's the cheapest one to you. Hence, in Northern Europe, people sort of default to Ireland because it's cheaper than London. And the latency difference between Ireland and London for the south of England is negligible unless you're doing lots of kind of traffic to and from for every request. Um, but yeah, it's certainly an interesting lens to look through when picking a region. Actually, based on these maps in the article, Ireland looks slightly worse from a CO2 perspective from electricity production than, than the UK. Um, so given a choice between Ireland and, and, and uh, England from a sustainability perspective, you'd be better off going for England. But um, surprisingly, France um, is, is completely green on here, um, so a much lower carbon intensity. So um, That's because all the power is nuclear. A... <laughs> no, there is. is a region... <laughs> Is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, most of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe there's a, a region in, in Paris. Yes. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, that might not be a bad option for the UK either. Thankfully, there are no regions in Poland, which looks pretty hideous on this map from a uh, carbon perspective. Apologies to any Polish listeners, but uh, I'm just saying what I see um, in, in front of me here. But um, yeah, so um, so yeah, it is, it is pretty useful. But of course, you know, if you are going to choose based on sustainability, you've got to factor those other um, other things in. Um, so latency, which I already mentioned, services and features. And when we were talking just before the podcast today, we mentioned that not all regions are equal. Um, so I guess you will need to check that the services you wish to consume are available in the region um, that could potentially be more sustainable for you. Otherwise, it's not an option. And of course, compliance is a big one as well. So if you have any um, data residency issues um, around where you're going to store your data, run your workloads. Um, you've got to make sure that you're not going to breach, breach any compliance regulations um, just to uh, just to save the planet. Um, well, I say just to save the planet. Obviously, I should not diminish the uh, sustainability yeah. objective. Um, yes. But, Hello, uh, Mr. Regulator. Get in the bin with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never but, met a data residency regulation that I didn't think was ridiculous, personally. But, you yeah. know. Yeah, well, that's a whole different subject matter. So uh, let's uh, let's move swiftly on um, to uh, vulnerabilities. So uh, recently, if you if you do read any news about AWS, you probably wouldn't have missed this one because it's still been going on. Uh, headlines about this all over the trade press for the last week or so and in my inbox again this morning um, but uh, AWS uh, were forced to disclose a vulnerability with the AppSync service um, after Datadog another one of our partners um, identified this uh, this vulnerability with the service um, so John tell us more about um, the AppSync vulnerability and confused deputies because I read that and I'm just confused uh, about what that actually means so uh, Help me out here. <laughs> it's doing its job then. Um, <laughs> right, so quick pricey on, on AppSync. AppSync is a service that provides methods for syncing things between various services, right? It's just kind of like an API piece of middleware. I don't know why I'm waving my fingers around for an API middleware, but I'm waving my fingers around. Um, yeah, Only video so... viewers will be able to see that. I'm so glad <laughs> you've described the actions that you... <laughs> You're making... He pays you money, you make your choice, right? You pick your platform, and sometimes you can see me. It's great. <laughs> but yeah, or not, so, as the case yeah, may be. Yeah. Which you may prefer. <laughs> um, but yeah, so AppSync. Um, basically, it lets you kind of push things around between databases and that sort of thing using APIs. Cool. Right. 
Datadog's write-up is a bit better than the IT news. IT news, it news. Datadog's write-up is a bit better than that in terms of telling you what kind of happened, right? Because uh, it's a security labs write-up, so you sort of expect them to know what they were talking about because they found it. But the short version is because you're hitting the AppSync GraphQL API, what that does is that assumes an IAM role and then goes and does a thing. Yeah, um, The diagram they've got is it assumes an IAM role and then it does something in an S3 bucket. Great. Easy peasy. We like that. What we, what we Datadog, found was that if you used Crazy Case, which is, um, for those of you listening unfamiliar, it's where you have a capital letter followed by a lowercase, followed by another capital and then a lowercase and so on and so on. Um, in, in internet meme language, it, it's used to... Uh, how can I word this without being offensive? It's, it's used to show people being ridiculous, basically, you know. Um, if you used Crazy Case, you could get around the role ARN um, checks, if you like, because role ARNs in the ARN aren't case sensitive. You can kind of put anything, well, no, they are case sensitive, but only in certain areas. So like the first, everything up to like the role name kind of ID isn't case sensitive. And then the ID at the end is. But you could, therefore, they couldn't have a must all be lowercase, must all be uppercase, because it could genuinely be mixed case. But the uh, only that kind of last bit is mixed case. So by using crazy case, you could get around um, validating that you were operating in the correct account. Um, so, yeah, they bypassed the ARN validation and then were able to create, how do they word it, AppSync data sources tied to roles in other accounts. So this is a cross this is a cross account vulnerability. It's not quite privilege escalation because they're not saying that you could have got root access, but yeah, yeah, worrying, definitely worrying because you could go into someone else's Dynamo table and start deleting things, or um, if you're being less malicious but more dark web inclined, you could start hoovering data up and um, selling that for money, you know that sort of thing. So generally, it's not a great thing however however aws have said that only datadog security people have exploited this have found it so they didn't exploit it but they're the only people that kind of found it and tested it and all that sort of thing which is good and aws has generally a quite good track record on this sort of thing because they seem to keep the logs for every service in perpetuity i don't remember the previous vulnerability that was of a similar nature but they kind of said we've looked we've looked through all of the logs since the service was created four years ago and no one else has done it so aws has said that again only the researchers have found this one so that's fine generally you don't have anything to worry about um and datadog and aws i think they've got a timeline at the top of the article there um with the disclosure timeline Datadog reported it to AWS on the 1st of September. AWS reproduced it on the 2nd. And then on the 6th of September, they pushed a fix to the AppSync and uh, Datadog confirmed the fix. And then on the 21st of November, so a few months later, uh, it was full coordinated disclosure, right? So everyone's done this properly. It's all been above board. It's all been kind of kosher, for lack of a better term. It's all been done right. It, it's not been, because you do see this with certain... Um, vendors where you know a researcher will tell them there's a problem they'll deny the problem exists and then the researcher has to go public with the problem and then the vendor fixes it because then everyone else knows so that's not what's happened here this has all been spot on above board brilliant behavior from everyone involved 
Yeah, I guess the uh, scenario you described there is not ideal. Um, even if it is helping the, uh, you know, to get the exploit, um, the vulnerability repaired, I guess, because uh, if they do have to go to the press before the vulnerability has been repaired, then there's an opportunity for uh, other nefarious actors to go in and exploit it um, prior to it being um, yeah. being repaired. So, uh, so it's nice to see that everything's been done properly here. Um, and uh, I think we can share the link to the Datadog article. Well, it's linked to from the uh, the news article yeah. anyway. So, as always, the news articles um, will be in the show notes if you want to go and read um, any of, about any of the things that we are talking about in, in the podcast. Um, so, uh, anything else to say on that one, John, or should we move on? Um, I don't think there's anything else. I think we can move on. Okie dokie. So, let's move on um, to... An article from our friends at the Register uh, about AWS giving older EC2 instances a legacy lifeline. Um, so, uh, what's this one all about? Well, it tells you there, as, as <laughs> these uh, as these uh, headlines often do. It goes on to say, uh, pre preserves pre twenty seventeen servers on its newer Nitro hardware. But uh, explain that to me in a bit more detail, John. You sure you don't want to say that a few times to test your pop filter again? <laughs> It was uh, well. I struggled just to say it anyway, to be honest. So uh, no, let's let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, right, Nitro Hardware. Let's start there. Is what's powering um, newer it generations of EC2. I forget exactly when it came in, but given it's saying pre 2017, it would have been 2017, 2018, around there. Right. So anything kind of newer than that. I forget the exact, you know, T3 is probably Nitro, M6 is probably that kind of thing. Um, and the Nitro hardware is... What's it doing? What's in this? It's called Smart Nick Based Tech. So it's improving client isolation by moving all the network stuff off of the host and, and kind of elsewhere, which is great. We like that. Uh, uses dedicated hardware, so it's rolled out to new hosts, obviously, because the hardware is dedicated. Um, and AWS have been traditionally, and they've been quite good generally, but they've traditionally been, you know, here's a new thing. Uh, the old things don't support it. We're going to continue to support the old things for a bit. But here's the new thing. Move to the new thing. You get the new thing, which is, you know, makes sense right in tech generally it's we've developed a new thing we're not backporting it to the old thing so if you want the new thing move to it cool in a bit of a turn aws has kind of changed tack on this and they are extending the length of service for older hardware to take advantage of the nitro kit which is great it's great for users because it means that if you're on say i don't know a t2 or um, probably an M4 probably doesn't have this um, then you will start to get the advantages of better customer isolation and the better hardware and all that sort of thing you probably won't see the cost reductions I wouldn't think but you will get some of the hardware changes and on top of that it means that you're not forced to move quite so quickly as you would have been because the hardware is going to hang around and then from AWS's perspective it's great because they don't have to replace the servers and then touching on the sustainability from the environment's perspective it's great because there's less e-waste because the servers are still running which is great we like this and much as i'd like to go and hoover a used server out of an aws data center um if they can just keep running them keep operating them and keep the e-waste down great lovely wonderful like that 
um, what are they saying in the article as well? It's first generation of, of previous, ge first wave, sorry, of previous generation instances, M1, 2 and 3 will be dealt with in 2022. And we're approaching the end of 2022, so that should be done shortly. And then this is going to start doing the rest of them kind of 2023 onwards, which, yeah, means you're not, as a customer, going to have to do these potentially painful server migrations onto newer instances. And your kind of hardware is just going to get moved under the covers without you noticing and you're going to get better hardware brilliant wonderful so does this mean they're actually having to install hardware into those older uh, underlying physical hosts to to deliver this given that nitro is hardware based is that is that what they're doing here i don't think they're installing it into hosts as such so if you look at um, a typical rack and I, I know that you've mashed your thumb in in rack studs and things before case nuts and whatever so you're familiar um it won't necessarily just be server 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 all the way down the rack right you'll have switching gear you'll have servers you'll have ups you might have more storage for some of the servers that aren't in the same chassis that kind of thing so as i understand it this is likely to just be more kind of networking gear kind of plocked into the rack rather than kind of going into each and every single one of the servers and then the switching gear is just attached to them from the outside yeah, yeah they'll probably need to be updated to work with that but from a customer's perspective it's irrelevant you don't need to know it's just going to work yeah i guess that's pretty cool if you're running large fleets of ec2 instances because uh, although it is relatively simple to change um, it is still a change which requires planning um, and uh, a little bit of downtime to do it. It requires a reboot. Not not a huge amount of downtime. But well, yeah, uh, because you can now change the instance without rebuilding the server, the instance type. So mm. this is, I think, just more of the same, right? It's just making it a lot easier for people to take advantage of the new kit. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's move on to the final article for this week, um, which... Um, is about AWS's investment in India. So uh, it was announced this week that uh, Amazon is going to launch a new cloud infrastructure region um, to grow its market presence in India. And they're going to invest uh, $4.4 billion in that region. So um, as we uh, found out during the, the talk at the Brighton Cloud Meetup last week, this is a bit of a one-way door for AWS. Um, you know, you don't decide to uh, build a region um, and then uh, get halfway through and turn around and back out. It's a massive investment in the region. So I guess there's a lot going on for AWS. We did talk on an earlier podcast um, about AWS launching a local zone um, somewhere in India. I can't remember where that was. Uh, but uh, putting a region, um, a new cloud region there is an even bigger investment. So, um, yeah, what are your thoughts around around this, John? Well, as I was sort of saying, I don't know if it was before we started recording or, or kind of in the sustainability piece, in Northern Europe, we're quite spoiled in terms of um, availability of regions, right? Uh, sitting in the south of England, we've got within not very many milliseconds of latency, we've got Ireland, London, Paris, Stockholm, Frankfurt, you know, like we're, we're close to half a dozen there or thereabouts regions and if you go to less um well-served parts of the world latin america you've got what sao paulo and a couple of others um you go to asia pack and you've not got huge numbers over there either you've got you know ap southeast one two and three and it's about it i think um so yeah this is generally quite good because 
what we what we like. We we like having a nice globally distributed system so that if you have customers in India, then you're not having to support them out of somewhere that's not there, which is great. This is good for the local area because jobs, building things, running things, and India generally, particularly in Hyderabad, which is where they're putting this, has this great um, history, started around the millennium, I think, because millennium bug, has this great history of, of IT competency. It's where lots of outsourcing happens. It's where lots of data centers and things are being run, traditional data centers for things like um, banks and what have you. Um, the competencies are there. The talent is already there. So if AWS is clearly tapping into that and saying, look, we can come up with a whole load of new jobs, the skill sets that we need are already there, they're thereabouts. And culturally, in, in that part of the world, people are very used to kind of growing up in a little village somewhere and then traveling to a large area to live and work because of just how big the country is. So the fact that it's, you know, they've, they've picked Hyderabad is, is perfectly logical. It's, this is great. This is brilliant. 48,000 new jobs, according to the article. Um, I guess that's across the entire uh, ecosystem that will need to support those data centers. But uh, yeah, AWS think it's going to create 48,000 new jobs in the region, which is a uh, an incredible number, really, because I, I always relate these numbers to uh, the population of the Isle of Man, which is where <laughs> where I was born <laughs> and raised. And uh, that is more than half of the population of the island that I lived on uh, that is going to be employed by uh, this new uh, AWS initiative. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge number of, uh, of jobs that it's going to create. Um, and it, they're also estimating it's going to add about 7.6 billion to India's GDP uh, by 2030. So, um, so, yeah, it's absolutely massive. I also noticed further down the article that uh, the, we, we mentioned the local zone that was launched earlier this year. There's another three of those planned later in the year uh, for Chennai, Bengaluru and Kolkata and um, apologies to any Indian listeners if I pronounce any of those incorrectly um, I was particularly concerned about the one that began with B so I'm not going to try and say it again I think I got Chennai and Kolkata okay do you want to try the B one John? Bengaluru Bengaluru yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked with enough people in India that I should be able to pronounce Indian words but I, I apologize unreservedly I assume it's different to Bangalore which is easier to say Probably, yeah. I think. I think so. I think so. My, my um, Indian yeah. geography. I'm, I'm is good not with quite names. Yeah. I'm good with Indian names, but towns and cities and things I'm rubbish at. My Indian it's, geography it's... has uh, improved a little bit since uh, launching Logicata, actually, because we've had a lot of Indian T-shirt winners in the uh, in the weekly free <laughs> prize draw. So I have started to learn uh, where some cities are uh, in relation to what counties they're in or the administrative areas, that kind of thing. So it's definitely improving, but uh, yeah, still a lot to learn. It's also interesting looking at this, talking about uh, Indian states, that as a result of this, AWS's parent, Amazon, as everybody knows, should know, um, they're putting solar farms in Rajasthan, which is great. That's we, we, more sustainability because, you know, all these data centers need juice. India, if, if you're not familiar, is very hot and very sunny. So solar panels, great. We like those. And it's going to produce, what, what, what are they saying? more than a million megawatt hours of renewable energy that's um that's a lot that is a lot that, that's a lot yeah, that is a lot i think you bought into your solar panels at just the right time actually john because i heard on the uh, the news this morning that they're stopping taking orders for them now because they can't produce them quickly enough it's been so popular that's been going on for a little while and honestly i think i did it a little bit too late because i had a quote at the start of the year and then the quote i ended up taking ended up being 20% higher or something because right. of demand and because of market pricing and so on. 
But yeah, this is this we like this a million megawatt hours. What's 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 that? That's a thousand gigawatts, gigawatts, gigawatts. If you like Back to the Future, that's what a petawatt of of power. That's a huge amount. Is is that all the power that the Isle of Man might need for what a decade, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> I have to work that one out. So. I, I, I must confess, I've never been to the Isle of Man, so I don't know what you do over there beyond race motorbikes across the island. Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure the power consumption per capita is any greater or less than, than it is anywhere else in the UK, but uh, it's just a, <laughs> a nice confined area to relate things to, in, in my mind, because that's where I'm from. But uh, anyway, Whenever you Perhaps do that, it makes it. me giggle, because the Isle of Man has a population of about twice what my town in the south of England has. So Yeah. It has about a third of the population of the town that I currently live in. So, well, not Peacehaven, but yeah, the Greater Brighton and Hove area. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it does put things into perspective. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of uh, the news articles that we wanted to talk to this week. So uh, let's wrap up there. Um, thanks again for listening to the Logicast podcast. Um, if you like it, please subscribe, uh, recommend us, review us. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week with episode nine. Um, so thanks again for listening and uh, we'll speak to you again soon.